Grab your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 5. And as we continue through the book of Daniel, and uh, as I mentioned before, we are, um, or we get the phrase, handwriting is on the wall from this chapter. Many of you are familiar with it. And I always laugh. I'm the pastor, so I'll admit this. I always have trouble finding Daniel. I always think it's somewhere it isn't. But what's really cool about Daniel is it's right after Ezekiel. That's how I've started to remember this. And Ezekiel was his contemporary. So that's really interesting. Daniel is in the courts, the political courts of Babylon. We're in the 600s and 500s BC as we orient ourselves to where we are in the Bible. The people of Judah have been taken by the Babylonians to guess where? Babylon. (laughs) And the reason they were taken there, two main reasons. One, they didn't adhere to the principle of rest. God said, six years, you plant and reap and harvest, but on, in the sixth year, I don't want you to make any provision for the seventh year. In the sixth year, I just, I'm going to give you double, so you won't have to worry about it, and I want you to rest. But we have no record of the people of Judah, Israel, of ever doing it. And they did it over a span of about 490 years. So God said, even I can do this math. And I'm bad at math. God says, you owe me 70 years. And so that's one of the reasons they were taken into exile in Babylon. The other reason is they had spiraled out of control in idolatry. And God took them to Babylon And what's interesting about it is through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah told the people who were being exiled to don't resist it. Integrate into it. Build houses. Get jobs. And that speaks of us leaning into the discipline and chastisement of the Lord. Not to reject it, because here's why. The Bible tells us that those he disciplines, what'd you say? He loves. They're his kids. I don't discipline other people's children, because I'm not the kid's father. (laughs) You do that. So that's what's happening. That's where we're at. And remember, there's three key dates In terms of the exile of Babylon, 605 BC, that's when Daniel and his buddies were taken to Babylon, the cream of the crop, so to speak. 597 BC, that's when Ezekiel and many other Jews were taken to Babylon. And 586 BC, it's the final knockout punch by Babylon. Babylon comes into Jerusalem, murders and kills and plunders and destroys the temple. 
And one of the things that the king of Babylon at the time, oh, king of Babylon at the time, Nebuchadnezzar did was he took the vessels, the holy vessels, out of the temple and he took them up to Babylon and he sort of stored them. And what have we been doing? We've been, uh, we've been uh, tracking now the life of Daniel. In the first chapter, it's just sort of Daniel's kind of life and how he lives and that sort of thing. In the second chapter, there's a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has, and Daniel gives us the time of the Gentiles, what uh, these uh, kingdoms are going to look like, after they, uh, when they knock off Babylon, who's it going to be after Babylon? It says it's going to be the Mer- Medes and the Persians. And after that, the Greeks. And after that, the Romans. And that came true with such alarming specificity that many people say Daniel was written after the events, which is not accurate. But anyway, that's in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, hearing that, he sort of is impressed by it. But he goes, oh, wait a minute. You mean I'm the head that's going to get replaced by the chest and shoulders, the breast and uh, arms of of, uh, the Medes and the Persians? Well, you know what I'll do? I'll erect my own statute of all gold, thumbing his nose at God. And so that's chapter 3. And then last week, we came into chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. He was humbled. And at first, he had another dream. He calls in Daniel. Daniel explains the second dream. But remember, Nebuchadnezzar is humiliated or brought to humility. And he's put out like a wild beast out in the dew of the grass. And we talked about that, remember? Uh, Babylon was such a great city. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar actually had a wife who was an outdoor enthusiast, let's say. So he built a couple things in his city of Babylon. One thing he built was a great mountain so she could have places to climb. And another thing he did was he made it a game preserve. And some people uh, theorize that maybe he was in the game preserve crawling around. And he did this for seven years. Oh, by the way, in the records of Babylon... For the exact time that this happened, it doesn't say that he did this, but there's no edicts from Nebuchadnezzar during that time. Isn't that fascinating? Because he was out. They were sort of covering it up. Okay, so that's chapter 4. Now we come to chapter 5. It's what my Bible calls Belshazzar's Feast. And if you want to understand the Bible, here's what I think you have to do, uh, other than be inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's first and foremost. Be inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit. When you read the Bible, pray that he gives you wisdom and learning, and he will. But here's some good keys. Here in the Old Testament especially, but in the New Testament too, just figure out who the players are. If you don't figure out who the players are, you're going to be lost, and you're gonna, I'm going to prove it here in the first word. Also, figure out the times and figure out the geography, where this takes place. Okay, watch this. I'll start. I'll read, but I'm only going to get through one word. Well, I'll go to two or three. Belshazzar the king. Stop. When I was a kid, man, reading this, or just growing up, you know, not really know. Wait a minute. 
Who's Belshazzar? <laughs> Just from out of nowhere. Daniel is talking about this guy named Nebuchadnezzar who was the king of Babylon, and we talked about him. He was the greatest king probably of all time in terms of terror and uh, ruling with an iron fist and, you know, uh, dictator, all that. We talked about that. But then comes on the scene this guy named Belshazzar, and you're like, what? Time out. Did I miss a couple chapters? What's happening here? Well, let me tell you a, a little something that I told Jan this morning. I almost hesitate to tell you this, but oh well, I'm going for it. Do you know that chapter two through seven is not written in Hebrew, which the rest of the Old Testament is written in? It's written in Aramaic. Why is it written in Aramaic? Well, it was the language of the day and it was the language of the Babylonians. Why is it written here? I don't know exactly, except for I do know this. In ancient literature, especially with the Hebrew, which Daniel was, also part of the Babylonian kingdom, they wrote in chiasms or parallelism. It's a form of literature or poetic structure. For instance, watch this. If you had this line and this line, they would match. And then you come into the next two lines and they match. And then you come into the middle two lines and they match. And the thing in the middle is the climax of the entire poem or structure. Or, watch this, if you're going this way, these two match, these two match, these two match. You get what I'm saying? And it's a form of literary structure that's pervasive in the Psalms. You read it, and we're reading in English, and we don't quite get it, but we sort of get it. But... If we knew Hebrew, we'd really get it. And here, what I want to tell you is, Daniel put this thing together in a literary way. Because here's what I believe. I think chapter 2 through chapter 7 are a chiasm. When I would used to read this, I used to say, wait a minute, hold on here. You're telling me in chapter 2, there's this image of these different kingdoms, and then you get into chapter 7, and he has a dream, and it's an image of all these kingdoms? It's the same thing, actually, in two different dreams. Everybody tracking with me? So you got 2 and 7. Same theme. What kingdoms are coming in the time of the Gentiles, during which Israel is still a country... And what's going to happen when Israel comes back to life? And when did Israel come back to life? 1948. That's two and seven. Then you have these stories. This one really confused me. In fact, I always get them confused. Was Daniel in the lion's den or the fiery furnace? Were the three guys in the fiery furnace or the lion's den? Where was... In chapter three, we have Daniel's friends. Daniel's nowhere to be found. And he's in a fiery furnace. Or they're in a fiery furnace. Excuse me. The three are in a fiery furnace. In chapter 6, you have Daniel in a lion's den. And they both come out miraculously by the power of God. Amen? Watch. You've got these two bookends, and now you've got these two chapters. But here, the middle, the climax, the pinnacle. i got to tell you, if I was the Lord... And thank goodness I'm not. I probably would have stuck the prophecy right there in the middle. And it's fascinating, and I love it, and it is important. I'm, no one's saying it's not. 
It is important. It's very important. But there's two people, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, who are brought to humiliation. And in fact, Nebuchadnezzar is humiliated and responds to the Lord in the right way. Belshazzar, his grandson, doesn't respond the right way. And the Medes and the Persian come in on that October night and slay him. The middle. You get what I'm saying? Everybody tracking with me right here? Here's why. This verse just leaps out at me from the New Testament. God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. James 4, 6. It's actually written in Peter also, and it's actually in the Psalms. It's really important. God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. Boom! Right in the middle. And so I think the Lord is showing us this here in the American church because I think we tend to remove ourselves and put ourselves back under the law by being great doers and performers, good little boys and good little girls, so we can earn God's approval when in fact the Bible tells us that it's all about grace, God's glorious giving of his son so that we can come back into relationship with him. See, that's what I think this is about. Of course, this is real history that's really happened. But you'll notice something, and I think this will interest you. In chapter 5, would you read the very last line of it with me? That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now flip over to chapter 7. And flip over to chapter 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, look over in the first verse of chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So I got a question for you. Did chapter 7 and chapter 8 happen before or after chapter 5? It happened before. And that's the point. God here inspired Daniel to put this together and to use, I think, a literary device to prove something powerful to you and I. Because he took it out of even chronological order. Isn't that interesting? Everybody with me? Watch this. Belshazzar, the king. The king? Who's he the king of? Well, he's the king of Babylon now. Here's what's happened. This is forward in time. Belshazzar, or excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC. This is one night, October 12th, 539 BC. You get it? And so <clears throat> what happened was Nebuchadnezzar died. The Bible tells us in Chronicles and some other places that there were a couple quick hitting kings. They came in, but they were out very quickly up in Babylon. But then There's this man named Nabonus, and he came in, and he became the king of Babylon. And this man, we'll call him N, King N, he loved to go out and be away from the city. And some people believe, through historical, extra-biblical records, that he was actually fighting the Medes and the Persians. 
But he needed somebody to rule over the city while he was out doing his fighting. And so he used his son, who was the son of the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He used this guy named Belshazzar. And there's proof in this text that that, in fact, was going on. Because you'll see here, he offers Daniel, when Daniel's asked to come uh, tell the dream, he says, this is head-scratching to me. But he says, hey, Daniel, if you can tell me the dream, guess what? What? I'll give you the third place in the kingdom. What? What do you mean the third place of the kingdom? Well, King En, who was out fighting the Medes and Persian, is king number one. His son, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, is king number two. He couldn't offer anything greater than two or one, so he had to offer the third place. Everybody understand? So here we got the king of Babylon, but he's co-regent, so to speak, with this other king who's out fighting. Belshazzar of Babylon, further in time, not 562 anymore, 539, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. Now that's really weird. You know why it's really weird? Because extra biblical history tells us around the great city of Babylon, the impenetrable city, there's no way you could get in. The walls were so high and so long. Remember, we talked about it. They could go six chariots wide. This is better than NASCAR. They could go six chariots wide on the top of the walls. Uh, underneath, right by, uh, underneath the walls was a moat or big, massive moat. And they had actually the first walls and then the second walls with gates. I mean, this was impenetrable. They had 20 years, extra biblical history tells us, they had 20 years of food provisions for the entire city. They had the Euphrates River that flowed right through the city, so they were never going to run out of water. This was a done deal. And he, strangely enough, isn't it weird, throws a party when they're outside. Now, the Medes and the Persians were known for what's called siege warfare. They were like the boa constrictor of fighting groups. They would just sit there and squeeze you just little by little, little by little, and wait you out. Wouldn't you be a little bit uh, concerned? Especially if your grandpa and father had told you about the prophecy that was coming where you're going to get knocked out by the Medes and the Persians. But he doesn't do that. He throws a party. And it's not just a party, folks. It's for a thousand of his lords. Probably the reason he has a thousand lords there is because they all have come back to Babylon because they got beat out in the countryside. Get it? And so he has a thousand lords. So if they were lords, there were other people there. And they were drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. And while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the uh, uh, command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. Now, two questions. Wait a minute, Pastor. You just said that Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, that's no big deal. Oftentimes in the Bible, they would call an ancestor the fathers. So that's nothing. Uh, don't think that's a mistake of the Bible. That's not of the mistake. That's just saying um, uh, these two were ancestors. So it doesn't really tell you whether it was biological father or grandfather or even great-grandfather. And you find that many places throughout the Bible. But here he, he, he 
forget the issue of father, he brings back the gold and silver vessels. Those are the ones that Nebuchadnezzar had taken, but sorta had kinda revered them and at least been respectful of them and stored them away, remember? And so this guy says, wait a minute, we're gonna have a party and we're gonna bring out the vessels. Now, what is he saying when he brings out the vessels other than he just wants to party? He's saying this, our gods have beaten the God of Judah. The one that they call the one true and living God. He's mocking God. He's mocking the people of God. And I'm confident, no matter what Daniel says or anybody else, that those Medes and the Persians that are around the city, they have no chance. We can stay here forever. And you know what we'll do? We'll just show them, including our people who we'll give a morale boost to, who have been hearing the clanking outside the walls, we'll give them a morale boost and we'll throw a big party. Hey, this is interesting. Archaeologists have found in Babylon, isn't this amazing, in Nebuchadnezzar's palace, a massive banquet hall, watch this, with plaster wall where the king would sit. And they say, they use this word, they had a little niche cut out of the plaster wall where they think a throne would go. And they've actually discovered this in the places in and around Babylon. So while he tasted the wine, he gave the command to bring these gold things. And Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, or which the father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, now watch, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So what we're hearing here and seeing here is he's now introducing the other sex. And we don't think, based on the language, it was just to dance, if you get my drift. They were having a drunken orgy. So here, they bring him in, and they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, king's concubines, and they drank wine, watch this, and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood, and stone. In other words, what he's saying, (laughs) our gods beat your God. Daniel, friends, he isn't talking to Daniel yet, but our God, our gods are the greatest gods, and they will defeat uh, them even though the city's surrounded and it looks bad for us. We're trusting in our God. So, hey, let's live for today. Sound familiar? It's what the world says today. Now watch this. Fascinating. In the same hour, the Bible is particular about telling us that. In the same hour, not an hour had passed. He got the party started, man. Not an hour had passed. The finger of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. So some have surmised that this was right behind the king because there's a little niche that they have found and behind it is a plaster wall in this banquet hall. So many people are saying or thinking, uh, commentators, that the hand is appearing right behind him. Now, I got to tell you something about ancient warfare. Many ancient armies, when they would go and they would 
wipe out people, whether they killed them or they took them prisoner. If they took them prisoner, you know what one thing they would often do? They would cut off the right hand of the people they were conquering and they'd throw them in a pit. And it was a sign that we're more powerful than you. And the right hand was the sign of power. Sorry, lefties. Anybody lefty in here? (laughs) Okay, sorry. (laughs) But the right hand was supposedly a a sign of power. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, etc. So look what the Lord's doing within one hour. Here you have this cocky, smug, prideful, arrogant king who didn't learn from his grandpa and the things that grandpa went through. And he goes and throws a party and ignores any prophecy that he may have heard, and within an hour, watch this, a hand. Do you ever wonder why it was a hand? The Lord is saying right back to him, you're conquered. You're conquered. Now, the finger of God, if you trace it through the Old Testament, mentioned three or four times in the Old Testament, always has to do with the power of God. So here you got it. In the same hour, the fingers of a man hand appeared and wrote opposite the landstand, plaster the wall of the king, uh, king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And then the king's countenance changed. And his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. He is frightened. It's appeared. It's a right hand. It's written out of nowhere, a detached hand. And I don't want to give you too much information, but what that's saying there in the Hebrew is that his bowels were unlocked. He's scared. So the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. This is just what... He had done before. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation, uh, uh, tells me its interpretation, shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Interesting, right? And now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, and his lords were astonished. Now let me just take a quick time out here and sort of go down a little bit of a rabbit trail, but not really. See how important it is to be able to read the handwriting on the wall. You realize, right? Daniel has been put on the shelf here now for about 20 or whatever years. Again, I'm not very good at math. Nebuchadnezzar, during his reign, Daniel was high up. We don't hear about him doing anything until this time. The Lord had been, uh, you know, just sort of, you know, keeping him there until such time as somebody needed to know the handwriting on the wall. You're like, what is, what's, okay, what, what, what are you talking about? Yeah, I don't know if you've noticed this, folks, but the Middle East 
humanly speaking now, humanly, it's an absolute mess. You can't really go a day and you don't hear about tension in the Middle East, true? And you've heard it for the last 40, 50, you know, for, forever, but I mean, I've only been alive 55 years, so that's how long I've heard it. But there's another little thing that happened about two years ago, and everybody was looking for answers. It was called a pandemic. And before that, the thing that I remember is 2001, when these planes horrifically run into these buildings. And the whole country just sort of humbled up, became humble. And where did they all go for the first two weeks? They all went to church. See, the Bible calls you and I to be great dividers of the word, great dividers of a word. You know what I think that means? I think it means think. Ask the Holy Spirit to allow you to think. I said this this morning in our foundations class. I hope I didn't hurt anybody's feelings, but I'm going to say it again. God doesn't want you to be a vomiter. I know it's not a word. Of all the facts. It's good to know the facts. But what God is after is that you and I and we be a great divider of the word, which means we first have to know the word. But then we need the wisdom and instruction to apply the word. Because here's what's going to happen. There's going to be planes that run into a building, a massive building, the biggest building on earth. And it's all going to come toppling down on people and nobody's going to know what to do, and they're going to look to the Christians to help them explain. Here, it's the same thing. The same hour, this finger comes up, and he's searching high and low. I mean, he's going through them all. Every different kind of soothsayer, astrologer, Chaldean, which means wise man, to come and give him this interpretation. Whoever reads this writing and tells me, I'm going to give him some gifts. And King Belshazzar was greatly troubled and his countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. But watch this. The queen comes in. Probably, it's probably Belshazzar's mother. Uh, the queen mother. Probably not his wife. Probably the mother. Uh, the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. And the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Don't let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There's a man in your kingdom, watch, in whom is the spirit of the holy God. When something rough happens, like planes going into a building, People are going to seek out God, and God, watch this, is going to use the man or the woman, the boy or girl, who's filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just somebody who comes and learns facts and rolls through Sunday and puts some money in a box and helps old ladies across the street. None of that. Well, those are good things, but you, you get it? It's somebody with a dynamic, vital relationship with the Lord who's wise in his or her life normally who sort of you kind of keep at bay if you're the world because they're different than you. But when bad things happen, here they come. 
This sort of happened to me at the beginning of our men's fellowship. At the beginning of our men's fellowship, we moved to this place. Well, I better not say it <laughs> in this day and age. We moved to a street uh, uh, nearby. We'll put it that way. And when we got to the street, we knew nobody, nobody, zero, nothing. And these people would have picnics out in their yards and stuff, and they would invite us. And I like football, if you didn't know this, so I can talk football with the guys and all that sort of thing. But then they started to learn that we were Christians and that we were interested in starting a home fellowship and stuff like that. And there was this one guy, and he was a sports dude. And we were getting along famously till I introduced the name of Christ, and then voom, he was gone. Gone. And then we'd see each other over the next couple years. And one time, my wife went to Latvia on a missions trip. And here I am. I'm studying for the bar. I think three or four little kids. I can't remember how many. I lose track. But anyway, and uh, her sister was over sort of watching the kids. And I came home from uh, my job. And first of all, her sister had a glazed look on her face, and that was from the kids. But uh, also she said, hey, some guy came here. He knocked on the door, and he sort of just came in and just was asking if you were here. And he, she wrote his name down, and she said, will you call him? And I said, sure, I'll call him. So I call him, and it's this sports guy, and it's like, like, what does he want? <laughs> Maybe he has tickets to something. Hey, this would be great. But something cataclysmic had happened in his life. And he came when previously he sort of just stayed away. But he came and we shared the gospel with him and we started to do the book of John on our back porch weekly. And after a couple of weeks of this, he said, man, we should do this with guys or something. So here, I'll call down to Panera Bread Company and get a room, and we should just invite guys and go through the Bible. And that's how the men's fellowship started at Calvary Chapel, Pittsburgh, or South Pittsburgh, but we didn't even have a church now. It was just a home fellowship with a men's group. <laughs> see, God will do that, you see. He says, I want you to see this, in whom is the spirit of the holy God. That means, watch this, Daniel lived his life in such a way that the non-Christian people who didn't even believe, who wanted to party, orgy, uh, uh, mock God, didn't care about God, my God will kill your God type of thing. I mean, bad stuff. When a bad thing happened, they knew he, Daniel lived his life in such a way that he was full of the Spirit of God. But I want you to see one more thing. He knew the God that he served by his life was holy or is holy, which means Daniel was set apart. He didn't do the things that the world did. He didn't participate in the things and go to the places that the world did. <clears throat> His life was marked by a gentle boldness of grace and truth and mercy. Do you see it? And what's fascinating about this is about 20 years have expired since Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel, watch this, who here is a seasoned saint? Well, I am. I'm 55, so I can get an ARP card or whatever those things are called. So I'm a seasoned saint now. <clears throat> but I want you to see something. Oftentimes you hear the seasoned saints say, well, do you do stuff for us? Or do we do stuff for you? Or how do I fit in? Well, watch this. Look what da Daniel did. Daniel, by this time, <clears throat> for sure, is in his middle 80s. 
He's now in his middle 80s. He was about 15 to 20 years old in 605 BC. He's in his middle 80s, close to 90 years old. And for 20 years, he's been doing quote unquote nothing, but he wasn't doing nothing. Can I say that? He was living a vital, dynamic, interactive, Holy Spirit-led relationship with the Lord. He wasn't crying and whining because he didn't have anything to do. He was communing with the Lord, just saying, Lord, whenever you have something for me, call me, I'll do it. But until that time, I'm just going to keep myself ready and available. And boom, 20 years later, the queen mother says, go get Daniel. I remember him. Something about his life spoke to the pagan queen. So I ask, does your life, does my life speak to non-believers? Am I full of the Spirit? Am I living a life pursuing holiness? Or am I always just trying to prove my point and be right? There's a big difference. You're here. Daniel, he's called. She knew. She knew. And in the days of your father there, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in Daniel... And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, he made him the chief of the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans and soothsayers. But now verse 12, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles and explaining enigmas are found in this Daniel, whom the uh, king named Bel Teshazzar. That means Bel is prince. A little bit different than Belshazzar. See, Daniel's name has a T in it. Now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. Let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said, Are you that Daniel who's one of the captives from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard of you. Isn't that fascinating? Here's a guy just partying through life with all the money and all the prestige and all the image and all the pressures and all that sort of thing. Now the queen has sort of told him about it, and it probably brought to remembrance some of the things that his grandfather had said and did about that time when he was uh, exiled out and had to live like a wild beast. And now he'd remembered, and you're that Daniel who is one of the captives whom my father brought from Judah, that the Spirit of God is in you. Isn't that a great testimony? Man, when you get to the end of your life, and they write it on your tombstone, unless the Lord comes back first, what do you want to have on your tombstone? I was always right. I was in the right political party. I wore a mask. I didn't take the vaccine. Send your emails to Xander. Or you were filled with the Spirit of God. What do you want on your tombstone? How do you want to live your life out? What's really fascinating about this is God used a man, Daniel. God used a man who, as we'll see, didn't care about selfish ambition, didn't care about gaining anything from the gospel, only that he would be able to tell people about God and his power. 
I'll let that sit there for a minute. You know who else was like that? Elijah. Remember Elijah in the book of Kings? Elijah's this powerful prophet. Remember this? He goes up on Mount Carmel and he beats back and slaughters all the prophets of Baal. And he sort of runs away and takes off. And, you know, he comes to the certain place and he comes to Queen Jezebel. And he's like, oh man, she's scary. (laughs) And he gets real scared. Remember this? And he runs and runs and runs farther and he goes farther south. And where does he go to? Do you remember the story? He goes and hides in a cave. Do you remember this? And God, man, God is so wonderfully patient and nice and not sarcastic like me. Praise the Lord. Because I'd be like, what are you doing, you sissy? That's not what God did. Do you remember what God did? God said, you know what? I don't really speak by fire or earthquake or wind. Remember that? Yeah, I can do that. I mean, the Lord could do that if he wanted. Of course, he could speak through that. But what did the Lord say? You're going to hear me in a still, small voice. In other words, I want to use you, Elijah, to get back out there. If you're not prophesying, who's prophesying? But it's funny, too, because Elijah says, Lord, if I die, what will happen? And God says, well... (laughs) I don't know, I have 7,000 more of you. (laughs) But anyway, God wanted to use a man. And God wants to use Daniel here. But here's the point. And here it comes. God wants to use you. (laughs) You see, as I look around, and I say this often, I really can't see any person here who works at the same place of work. Not one. Maybe if there's one or two in here, maybe. And I know the boss can be a jerk or the circumstances aren't so great, but guess what? The Lord has sent you there, not me. You can't come where I come because I have a pass and it's a security pass. You can't get in. I can get in. But here's the point. I can't get in where you go. And the Lord wants to do something in and through you. Guess what the Lord wants to do? He wants to speak to people, the gospel, yes, but he also wants to speak through your life. He chooses you and I and Daniels and Elijah's to go into your beachhead, the place where you've landed, and then show him to a dying and hurting world. To show things like this, love. You go, okay, he's the pastor. He's got to say this. Well, I'm talking about real love, not the love you see on MTV or in the movies where if you look good, I'll love you, or if you can do something for me, I'll love you. No, loving people who are unlovable. How about this? He wants to show people some of his character through you. He wants to show joy and gentleness and self-control and love and patience and kindness. And the thing is, is we sort of sometimes rebel against that. We're like, I hate my job. Why am I here? Why are you there? You're there because nobody else can go. I mean, somebody else could, but you get what I'm saying. You're there to speak forth the things of God and to show people who God is because here's why. Not because you've been a good little boy or a good little girl that we could pat on the head, but because the spirit of the living God lives inside of you. And so when people look at you, they go, whoa, 
Something's different. I might not invite them to the drinking party or the Christmas party or the dirty joke telling party now, but I'm going to file it away. And when I need them, they'll be the first ones I call. Isn't that interesting? That's Daniel. So Daniel comes in. He's brought there before the king. King says this to him. Spirit of God is in you. There's light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. That's what the Holy Spirit gives. Now, verse 15, the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they couldn't give it. And that's so true. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You ready for this? This is all right here in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and it's in uh, verse 16. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Uh, We don't lose heart even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. In, In other words, as I grow in age here, And I'm telling you, the outward man is perishing. (laughs) I exercised this week. My wife was away, and I'm having trouble standing up here. But anyway, (laughs) but the inward man is being renewed day by day. And in other places in the Bible, it says that the natural man can't understand these things that they hear and read So the Lord has placed you someplace, and I have heard of you, verse 16, that you can give interpretations, explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you're going to be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler. We explained that. that. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, don't you love Daniel? Man, he's got guts, and you know where the guts come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit, because when you read the book of Acts, you see boldness, and that boldness is supernatural. It's not a boldness that knocks people over. It's a gentle boldness. It's a power under control meekness. We don't bowl people over. We control and are kind, and we don't bruise people who bruise easily. We don't snuff out a smoking wick. Power under control Here's what he says. Let your gifts be for yourself, king. <laughs> Give your rewards to another. Now that's, in our, you know, we're reading it and going, yeah, yeah, of course he'd say that. But you, when you go before the king in these times, you could get your head lopped off. Yet I'll read the writing to the king and made known to him the interpretation, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave his actual grandfather, they're calling him father here, all people's nations language trembled and feared uh, before him. Whoever he wished, he executed. Whoever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. This is Nebuchadnezzar. That's back in the last chapter. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts and dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he watched. How did he come out of it? How did he come out of the beastly living? 
when he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses, when he leaned in and submitted to the sovereignty of God, that's when Nebuchadnezzar was really, truly free. And that's what he's saying right there, and that's how you and I will be free. We lean in to the sovereignty of God. Like, for instance, remember when uh, in chapter 3, when his friends were about ready to go in the fiery furnace, they actually said to Nebuchadnezzar, listen to me, if that is the case, verse 17, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. If you're going to stick me or stick us in the fiery furnace, guess what? We know our God can save us. But watch this. This is what American church doesn't want. We love the first part. Lord, you can do it. We don't like the second part so much. But if not, they said, if you don't save us from this burning furnace, we recognize you're good and kind and powerful and loving still. And even if we die, we'll follow you and be with you. That's what they say. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we won't serve your gods, nor will we worship the image which you have set up. Wow, powerful. You're ne- look, look, look. You're never more free than when you've solved the, solved the death issue in your life. When you have solved the death issue in your life, and here's how you solve it. I serve a God who sent his son Jesus to die Rise again, give me eternal life, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, so that the sting of death has been removed for the Christian. You are so free at this point. And here we see it in uh, uh, Daniel as he's talking to this new king. So, verse 22, his son Belshazzar have not, you his son Belshazzar, you haven't humbled your heart, although you knew all this. See, that's the bad part about Belshazzar. He'd known the stories. He'd known the stories of his grandfather and all that came with that, and he still thumbed his nose at God. And see, here's what I fear. There's a lot of people in America who are just like that. They're charmed by God. They like the things God does. They enjoy his power and watching it work. But to surrender their life to that God, that's a different story. We want to live like the world and be like the world, even though we know it. Maybe we didn't do this, but really that's what we're doing. We're thumbing our nose at God. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They've brought vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords, wives, concubines, have drunk wine. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which did not... Uh, do not see or hear or know. Watch this. Look at what Daniel says. Now he gives him a theology lesson. He just gave him a history lesson. Remember, now he gives him a theology lesson. The God who holds your breath in his hand. Wow. You ever thought about this? You know you have an involuntary nervous system. You know, if I need to walk back to the box back there and put money in it or a prayer request, something in my mind says, hey, Tim, move your feet and go back there. And I do it. But I don't have to think about that. It just does it. There's an involuntary system. You go out in the heat, 90 degree day, 
Or you sit in here when the air conditioning's not on. What do you do? Your sweat glands just sweat. You didn't decide to do that. It's an involuntary system, and here's the point I'm trying to make. That's how close God is to you. That's who he is to you. Do me a favor. Take a deep breath. And blow out, unless you've not brushed your teeth. You ever thought, thank God for that? God holds your breath in his hand, and he owns all your ways, and you haven't glorified him. That's what he's saying to Belshazzar. Then the fingers of the hand were sent for him, and this writing was written. We read it earlier. Mene, mene, tekel, you farson. This is the interpretation of the word. Now, what's funny about this is the king knows Aramaic. So it must have been written in some weird way, or these words here are all uh, monetary amounts. Mene, mene is a mina. Tekel is a shekel, and eupharsin is a half shekel. So maybe when he was writing up there, he's writing up money things up on the wall, and the king's like, money? I don't get this. But they have some sort of meaning in the Aramaic, and they also show you something. And some people believe it was written in a cube, and some people believe it was written in the opposite way, which those who spoke Aramaic read with. But whatever, the interpretation of each is this. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom. I, I want you to know this. God's numbered your days. The scriptures tell us that. You're not going to die one second before you're supposed to. That's what the Bible teaches. And the Psalms tells us, do you know this? That your book has been written and watch. The psalmist says, let's pray and learn or teach us, Lord, how to count our days. Man, what if we lived like that? So God has numbered your kingdom, Belshazzar, but God has numbered our kingdom. We're not going to die one second before we're supposed to. And finished it. And Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. You're a spiritual lightweight. And praise the Lord, we're spiritual lightweights. That's something just to agree with the enemy quickly. Yes! Not even the enemy. The Lord himself says, blessed are the poor. Yes, I'm a spiritual lightweight. Yes, you come and save me and provide all the substance that I need. But here, that's what he's saying. And then he says, Perez, which is really fascinating because he's using the singular of Eupharsin, and they didn't really write with vowels. So it was P-R-S. So it's like a double meaning. Your kingdom has been divided and been Persianized, given to the Medes and Persians. Wow. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple, put a chain of gold around his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him. Why did he take the chain and the purple necklace or purple robe right there? I'm not 100% sure, but I think it had something to do with this. There's now no accusation that could come from anyone that he was pandering to the ungodly administration. And so that threat had been eliminated because on this night, within a few hours, 
they're going to be thrown out and the Medes and Persians are going to be in. So what harm does me uh, uh, have that I could have this chain and this robe? That's all I got for you there. Watch this. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain and Darius the Mede received the kingdom about 62 years old. Here's what I'll end up with. In October 12th, 539 BC, as they're having this party and they're all drunk, Cyrus the Persian comes, remember, Medes and Persian, and Cyrus the Persian comes and his army finds an empty canal. And guess what they do? They go under there a little bit and they dig and they divert the water that keeps them from going under the fence wasn't a fence, it was a big tower. And they divert it into the empty canal and the water lowers to about halfway, uh, waist uh, height. And the troops start going in, but they got one more problem. There's this big, massive other tower uh, walls, which were really sort of like gates. And there were Babylonian soldiers on the top, but they heard this ruckus below and they didn't believe that anybody could penetrate their fortress so they walked down out of their command center and opened the gates to look. And the Medes and the Persians poured in, ran upstairs, and killed Belshazzar. And that's extra-biblical historical account. Now I'm going to close on this and read this to you. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 24. Or excuse me, 44, apologize. Isaiah 44. Do you know Isaiah was written about 150 years, maybe 200 years? Listen to this now. Don't tune out. I know you want to watch the Steelers, but they're at 415, folks, so you can chill. Listen, Isaiah is written 150 to 200 years prior to this time. And I want you to read something with me. We'll go over to chapter 44, Verse 24, watch this. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, stretches out the heavens, and spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners or diviners, however you want to say it, mad, who turn wise men backward and makes their uh, knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of the messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built. Now watch this. And I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, watch, be dry. I just told you the story of what happened historically. They dried it up and I will dry up your rivers. Watch this. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure? Cyrus? He hadn't even been born yet. Saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built into the temple, your foundation shall be laid. In my Bible right here, I wrote, wow. Are you getting this? Here. In ch chapter 30, or verse 30 of chapter 5, and then on into 31, it says Darius the Mede, but Cyrus the, was the one who executed it. And next week, I'm going to tell you the relationship between Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. But what you've just seen 
is that God's word, 150 to 200 years prior, prophesies that the river will dry and they'll come and build, uh, uh, take away your walls or whatever, and Cyrus is going to be the one responsible for it. Can you imagine if you were in Isaiah's day, listening to this like, what? No way. I mean, Mede and Persia wasn't even a thing yet. It wasn't even on the horizon. So here's as we end. Here as we end. Listen. There's so many things in here that is applicable to us, but I don't want anybody to leave here ever without giving you an opportunity to surrender your life to Christ. If you think you've just been charmed by the Lord, you're kind of, you know, like the good things that he does, well, so did these kings, and they paid for it. But we have the one who already has paid for us, and all we need to do is surrender our life to Jesus and count on his finished work so that now you gain his righteousness And so if you walk down the street and somebody asked you this, and this is often sometimes how I witness, you think you're going to heaven? You know what you say? Oh, by the mercies of God, I am going to heaven. It's not because of anything I've done, but it's because of everything he has already finished. And if that's you, and you you don't think that that's happened for you in your life, I want you to come up after service and talk to me, and we'll pray together. I also want to encourage you that God's going to get his word done. His word shall come to pass. So as you count on his word, you could know he's going to deliver. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much for this day and this morning where we can come and study your word. What a privilege. And Lord, we can... Rest our hopes on who you are and how you've revealed yourself through the word. And now we have these major issues of life settled, like death. Oh, Lord, if we passed away physically here, we'd be present with you by the blood of your son, by the person and work of your Holy Spirit, who comes into our life as a down payment guaranteeing our way to heaven. We're marked people in the best way. We thank you for that. We'll praise you and give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, listen, I've gone too long. I've made the worship leaders mad. No, I don't think I've made them mad, but uh, I've gone too long. So we're just going to to go on out. And um, uh, if somebody can help, I think, I think there's some help to be had. Uh, Otherwise, God bless you and have a great week.